it comes as no surprise to anybody that over the past few decades that men and manhood and masculinity have taken a real uh, beating. Men have been castigated because they suffer from toxic masculinity, which includes that they're being dominant and self-reliant and competitive, which were things that when I was growing up where we were taught were virtues but now apparently they are not. They're some of the worst vices that they can have. Um, and so these, these critics view uh, men who act like men as being a threat to an increasingly feminized society. Hence, the goal has been to replace what C.S. Lewis uh, referred to as men without chests. What he meant was, he said, without virtue, without, without enterprise. In other words, to replace men who were noble and courageous and really were willing to take the fight where it needed to go instead to be shrinking and wilting behind some protective uh, skirt. And what we've ended up with is uh, an increasingly number of uh, feminized males who are so conflicted that today we're told that 30% of the Generation Z, that is the younger generation in their teens and younger, uh, identify themselves as being LGBTQ and whatever letters and acronyms come after that. And this has left not only young men in a state of confusion, it's left young women in an equal state of confusion. Because ultimately, what women yearn for is a strong, confident man who will show virtue and will display enterprise, who will promise to provide for them and protect them until death do them part. But what they're largely finding increasingly, and I find this in talking to young women, is they find that they find a lot of men who are boys who are in men's bodies. They can't hold down a job. They live in mom's basement playing video games, waiting for a strong woman to come along and replace their mom as their caretaker so that they can be that little boy who never has to grow up. There's been a really kind of amazing role reversal in many ways. And this is something that's very, very new in terms of if you look at history, because our oldest historical records that we have that were written by the Sumerians about 5,000 years ago portrayed men and women and children in what we would call the traditional nuclear family role. In fact, uh, Morris Jastrow, whose book on, on this subject, The Aspects of Religious Belief and Practice in Babylonia and Assyria, made the observation, he says, that no less than one quarter of the texts that they found deal with husbands and wives and parents and children. And he says this proportion, this amount of information, in other words, is a valuable indication of the importance of the social organization attached to the family. The general aim of the laws may be summed up in the statement that they are to ensure the purity of family life. Now, this becomes significant. We've talked about this quite a bit, but according to the latest CDC reports, um, our census reports, that only 18% of families exist in the nuclear family structure today in America. Now, I, I really struggled with that statistic. I had to go over it again and again, that only 18% of families that we see today have a mom, a dad, and children. 
That's scary, and even Elon Musk noted, he said, we cannot survive as a culture with this dearth of new children coming into the world. So on one hand, as we're being told that the greatest problem we have is overpopulation, the actual facts of the matter is that's not the problem at all, that we find that where there's underpopulation is when societies and cultures and nations begin to collapse. This is the crisis facing Russia, it's facing China, and it's certainly facing the United States increasingly. <clears throat> what is clear to the archaeologists and the sociologists alike is that the central core of ancient cultures was the nuclear family as it existed really from the very beginning. In the beginning, God made man and woman and, and made them, gave them this capacity to procreate so that when we talk about the union of men and women as being one flesh, in part that really is realized in the most perfect way that they can actually bear children and create families. The nuclear family has throughout history been the norm. It was, we would say, sacrosanct. What that means, that word means, is it's so important and so valuable that it should never be interfered with. And that was a concept that was really strong in human society up until recently where you just don't mess with families. They're too important to mess around. You do everything you can to support the family structure and you really eliminate anything that threatens it. See, by experience and even by intuition, even ancient peoples understood that the nuclear, if the nuclear family were to collapse, the society and the, and the civilization would soon follow it. Now, I know you've heard me say this over and over and over again, and the reason is I find that it takes repeating things to get people to actually begin to hear what you're saying. Paul said, you're a good minister of Jesus Christ if you bring the brethren into remembrance of these things. And some things are so central, so essential. And we have a culture that is so antithetical to those central things that sometimes it's easy for us to get confused and to simply lose sight. So you might ask who in their right mind would endeavor to create an alternative structure for society. See, up, up until very recently, such persons would have been ostracized or institutionalized. We would have said they're either demented or demon-possessed or both. Yet today, we find very aggressively from every direction, the idea that family as we would understand it for millennia is no longer essential, that we can really kind of restructure it in any way that we might want to imagine. We live in an interesting era where we say that if we can conceive of it, then it becomes doable. We just have to do whatever we need to do to make it happen without any regards of whether it's good, bad, or evil. <coughs> Because the people who are strongest before this actually don't believe there is anything as evil. So who are these people? Well, we find it coming from educators, from lawmakers, from media personalities, from entertainers, from corporations, from politicians. They've coupled themselves with soulless psychopaths. That's the only way I can describe them in the medical and pharmaceutical and scientific communities that are all seeking to enrich themselves with these Frankensteinish methodologies of chemical sterilization and surgical castration, all with the blessing of conscienceless clerics who declare that God simply has changed his mind, that 
the abominable is now preferable. Perversion is permissible. And you can't even use those words. Even as I talk about some of these things as being abominations or being perversions, immediately I am beset with people who are saying, how can you say anything so unloving and so kind, unkind? And my response is always the same. Watch me now. <laughs> See, ironically, the biggest losers in all of this are women who are supposed to be the beneficiaries, just as we are seeing women suffering the consequences of the transgender movement in women's athletics, that anybody with even a partial brainstem understands that men just carry more physical mass and ability to, to accomplish. They, they can run faster. They can jump higher. There, there's just not an even match. That's why we created women's sports as opposed to just sports to give women a fair opportunity to be able to display their skills. And yet, at the same time that we're talking about how we need to recognize and honor women, we create this, this Frankenstein of a dynamic where they certainly will be destroyed so that underperforming males can simply identify as female and therefore win the accolades and the awards and the monies that come with it. It's a perversion. It's an abomination. It's a corruption. You see, in this brash new world, words like woman can no longer be defined, at least according to our newest Supreme Court justice, because she said she's not a biologist. And I, you, know, you just sit there just un unbelievably. You just sit there and go, you are a woman. You certainly you know, are different than a man, and yet you have the, the, the audacity to say that you can't define that word. Everybody knows the game you're playing. Everybody knows that you find lying about this to be something that's easy. I just live in terror of ever having to have something that matters to me be judged by a person with that lack of integrity. But we see the TikTok influencers who laud the benefits of childlessness, and environmentalists who warn that climate change is going to kill us all, that we find it's better to forego childbirth, they tell us, that give up the idea of families altogether. While the transhumanist people like Yuval Noah Hariri tell us the discussion really is moot because, after all, he says technology will transform people into different kinds of human beings. In the future, it will be very easy for a person to change gender or even create a new gender. It's amazing to me that people like that who are intelligent people make statements like that that are so almost would be considered silly, but they're just absolutely so very wrong and so disconnected from reality that either they're being led by demons or they're just purposely lying to accomplish something else. Well, not to be outdone, Dr. Richard Paulson, who was a former president of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, said in a recent interview, he said, there's no anatomical reason why a womb could not be successfully implanted in a transgender woman, or basically in a man. Now, it's not like they haven't tried. In 1935, there was a transgender man who went through all of the years of, of uh, 
surgeries and, and hormone treatments and so forth and eventually had a womb from a dead woman implanted inside of him. And after it was successfully implanted, he lived for six weeks afterwards. They said he died of a heart attack. The truth of the matter is he died of organ rejection because it was not, not normal. But anyway, that didn't stop Dr. Paulson. He says, there would be additional challenges, yeah. But I don't see any obvious problem with, that would preclude it. I personally suspect that there are going to be trans women or men who are going to want to have uteruses and will likely get the transplant. Now, so we find that our children, by way of their schools, are already being prepared for this new reality. In fact, uh, the King County Public Health Department has just put out a newly released curriculum for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade children. And one of the statements you find further down in their report, it's quite lengthy if you want to take the time to read it, but you read long enough, you come upon this statement. Gender identity refers to whether a person feels like a boy, a girl, both, neither, or somewhere in between. A person knows their gender identity because they know how they feel, not because of their body parts. Some gender identities include boy, girl, trans, and non-binary. Now, again, there's no scientific truth in that whatsoever, and yet this is part of the curriculum of King County School District coming from the King County Health Department and it will probably be showing up in a school near you very soon. So that even our president no longer uses the term mothers, but instead refers to them as birthing persons. Now, what these medical minimalists uh, do not want to admit is that only mothers can give birth. So that for that reason alone, motherhood is mankind's most unique and exclusive activity. I mean, even Paul made that comment to the Corinthians. He said, <coughs> and this may come as a newsflash, you may not have read this passage before, man is born of woman. There he's going out on a ledge there with that one. <laughs> you know, I, I feel almost silly that I'm even having this presentation, but the reason why I'm even saying these things is because you're literally being inundated with contrary information. I mean, it's, it's coming from every sector, every authoritative voice on the planet that you even watch Fox News and they'll have a contributor like, you know, Bruce Jenner pretending to be a woman. And they just talk with him as if he's just, you know, that as if he actually is a woman when we all know before 52, this Olympic athlete was a man who was married and had family, and now he's declared that he's a woman. And I don't mean to be mean to Bruce, and I don't mean to dead name him, but he's Bruce. I'm sorry. You can check his blood, and you're going to find it's a man's blood. You're going to find that he is, there's no way of changing that. He is biologically a male. You can't alter that. But Paul adds that. He says, man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. God who created man and who created woman created us to be that way. 
And what gets lost in this whole thing is that people are more than their bodies. And they certainly are far more than their feelings. We're told in scripture, as we looked at last week, that Paul said, you're composed of a body, you're composed of a soul, you're composed of spirit. That two-thirds of the essence of you is not matter, but it's spiritual. A spiritual dimension which enables you to know God and to communicate with God and have fellowship with God. Because we were made in the image of God, not a physical representation, but rather the ability to actually imagine God and to believe in him and to to know that he's there and to see his presence in our world. And even to look at our own selves, as the psalmist said, and realize that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That even our bodies are beyond explanation or even definition by the scientific community as much and as often as they pretend that they are able to do so. That God made us in the image of God. He made each of us after our own kind, which is a designation that we are humans. We are not part animal. As humans, we are male and we are female. And one of the things we realize is that sex is a fixed reality that begins at the moment of conception. It was Jeremiah who said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither a person can change his or her sex. It's a fixed reality that can't be altered by semantics. From the moment a baby is conceived, a woman's body begins to do things that no man's body, even if he has a uterus put inside of him, is capable of doing. Women who become pregnant change physically, chemically, emotionally, spiritually, and even neurological. As Scientific American pointed out, they said, a manifest shift takes place in the neuronal size of act- and activity and capacity of the brain. Like a race car burning rubber before the green light, these MPOA neurons are readying themselves to respond to the offspring stimulus with appropriate and sensitive impulses. You see, conception, again, is far more than biology. If you ever took an auto shop in school, you realize that you might be able to take an engine apart and separate all of its individual pieces, but the real challenge is to know how to put it all back together and make it still run and work without blowing up. And we live in this age where we figure if we can take it apart, it's the same as creating it from nothing. It's like the scientist who said, well, I believe that I could take energy and matter and work them together and I could create life. And the guy next to him responded and said, well, wait a minute. First of all, you have to create your own energy. You have to create your own matter. And then we'll see if you can create life. There's this this overlooking of the obvious that there are dynamics so far beyond us. But again, conception is far more than biology. It is a divine act that encompasses the entirety of a woman's body and soul and her spirit. When the psalmist says in Psalm 139, God created my inmost being. God knit me together in my mother's womb. It's not just a matter of biology. 
And this reductionism that we see in our world, that people are nothing else but machines, and they're nothing else but animals. And it's this reduction which reduces the very dignity and the value of human lives to turn them into something that's not wonderful and magnificent and unique. There's a reason why the book of Genesis puts the birth and the creation of man, I should say, by God at the very end of God's creative act because it was the apex. That everything, the Bible says, was a formation. It was laying down of a foundation so that he could put man in the midst of what he had created so that God could have fellowship with man. And he gave man that unique capacity to reproduce after his own kind. Not just to become living, but to become someone with whom he could walk in the garden in the cool of the day. That's why Jeremiah said, before I formed you in the womb, God speaking to him said, I knew you before you were even born. That God said, you didn't just simply come into being because you were conceived in your mother's womb. I knew you before you ever even came to that beginning of conception. And I set you apart for my purpose and my plan. It's because of a mother's unique experience of birth itself that she has a very different relationship with her child than any father could ever have. My wife and I have had these conversations and I realized that she had a nine-month head start on me. And we interact differently. The fathers tend to be more physically engaged. They, we like to wrestle and tickle and chase and play games. And we're less verbal and more, we do a lot less baby talk. You know, we're not good at baby talk. <laughs> and even the way that we train and discipline our children is different. We as Paul put it when he was writing to the Thessalonians, he was trying to describe his care for them as a spiritual father. He said, we exhort and we charge. We charge our children to walk worthy of God, emphasizing the consequences of bad behavior. Fathers often say, you know, you got to understand if you do that, there are going to be X, Y, and Z consequences that are going to come as a result. I'm just telling you, don't do that because if you do that, you're going to find that Something bad is, not, is going to happen. In contrast, mothers, we, Paul, even the reading that we read today, he said, we were like mothers with you. How was he like mothers? He said, we were gentle. We were caring. We were loving. She delights to share her life, to toil and face hardships for her children, to work night and day because you are so dear to her. You see, moms talk more with their children. They're more gentle in their nurturing. They discipline more by emphasizing the impact socially of their behavior. If you act that way, you'll have no friends. Dad say you act like that and I'll visit you in jail. Very different times. You come upon a traffic accident, and the first thing in a man's mind is, who's responsible for this? And a woman's mind is, did anybody get hurt? We just look at it from very, very different perspectives. In some ways, if I try to put it into simpler terms, and I know this is oversimplification, but I almost feel like that children get their heads from their dads, but they get their hearts from their mom. 
that they learn that empathy and that connection. Now, it's obvious, as I said last week, kids need both. But it's so important for us to understand the significant role and contribution moms play in the life of children. Because most importantly, from birth to puberty, it's the moms who spend the most time, the longest time, the most intimate time with their children. And that begins not from when they're born, but when they're in their womb, that moms are already talking and caressing and caring and interacting and sharing, not just their body and their nutrition and fluids, but there is something where that mom puts her hands on her belly and talks about my baby. It's something that is almost mystical in its depth. Moms more than dads shape a child's moral and ethical and social and religious views of the world. Consider what Paul said to Timothy. He said, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is in you as well. When you think about it, my family was not a particularly religious, well, they weren't even really religious at all, but it was my mom who became concerned that I know certain things about the Bible. It didn't concern my dad. He wanted me to learn how to make a living and survive, how to change the oil and go to law school so I could defend him. <laughs> for his questionable business practices. <clears throat> but it was my mom who was concerned about the moral development of my life. A mom's influence is so great that historians have noted it's the hand that rocks the cradle that rules the world. And that seems like one of those kind of sweet platitudes when uh, William James wrote this poem in, in, uh, by that name in 1865. You know, it's kind of like, oh, isn't that sweet? The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And yet, since that time, historians and sociologists and others have simply dug in and began to say, is it evidentiary? Is that something we find in history? And it's amazing. Study after study after study has found that the one, number one primary factor in the development of people who accomplish great things is their relationship with their mothers. In fact, rare is it when fathers are highly successful that their children will ever reach the same level of success, which is often a point of great frustration for them. Biographies of the world's most influential persons regularly found it was the influence of mothers far more than the influence of fathers that had the greatest impact upon their development. One historian summed it up simply by saying, behind every great man is an extraordinary mother. I mean, this certainly was true of well-known figures. Julius Caesar was greatly impacted by his mother. Alexander the Great was greatly impacted by his mother. She's a bigger, even though his father was, a, it was King Philip was a king of the Macedonian Empire, it was his mother who really put it into his mind and his heart that he could conquer the world. Even Winston Churchill was deeply, deeply idolized his mother. And we look at the biblical record that tells us much the same thing. I mean, we look at Isaac and then we can't help but think about the role that Sarah played. 
or about Jacob, and we think about his mother, Rebekah, who loved him much. Even Ishmael, whose mother, Hagar, was cast off and raised him as a single mother. Or what about Samuel and his mother, Hannah, or Bathsheba, and the influence she had upon Solomon? We know about John the Baptist, and who do we hear more about, Zechariah, or do we hear more about Elizabeth, or even Mary and Joseph? Who is it that is quoted at length in his birth story and nativity? We hear almost nothing from Joseph. It's all about Mary and what she thought and what she said. So it's not surprising when you come to the Decalogue, you know, the Ten Commandments, that we are instructed about our interaction with our parents. And in fact, in Paul in Ephesians 6 kind of gives a summary statement about the whole thing. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Which is the first commandment, he said, with a promise. He said, the promise is this, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So he says, you know, if you you want to be successful in your living, you need to begin by honoring your mother and your father. And it doesn't imply that your parents are uh, perfect, except in my case. But in most cases, you know, these are flawed human beings with all of their foibles and everything that goes with it. But there's this issue of respecting them because that's where even the organization of society around respecting those who are in authority comes from. That when we see children who are rebellious against their teachers and other authority figures in their life, we know that there is a lack of honoring of the parents. And it may be justified, it may be easy to explain or identify, but nonetheless, in the long run, that child will suffer as a consequence. Because even if the authorities within the home are bad, it doesn't make all authority bad. In fact, in Leviticus, he said it again, every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. And he warns in Deuteronomy 27, cursed is he who dishonors his father or his mother. Cursed is he who dishonors his mother or his father. And so too, when we, when we begin to look at Solomon, we find that uh, he says some really interesting things about in Proverbs 1 and again in Proverbs 2. He says, hear my son the commandment and instruction of your father, but also he adds, do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now Solomon is an interesting character because, <coughs> excuse me, he grew up <coughs> uh, in, in, a, in a harem. David, we know, had at least 16 wives. And that never works out well. I don't say that from experience, but I just can look at David's life and realize that did not work out well. But who was it that had the greatest influence upon Solomon as he was growing? And we know it had to be his mother Bathsheba. So he says, hear, my son, the commandments, and do not forsake your mother's teachings. And then he goes on to personify wisdom, which is such a fascinating thing. The personification, in other words, giving a a human face to a concept. He said that (coughs) wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. She will protect you, love her, and she will 
watch over you, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. You see, I think from our fathers, we get a very clear sense, hopefully, of what is right and what is wrong. In a world that's filled with all sorts of confusion and strange messages, fathers have the ability to simply say, here's right, here's truth, here's good, here's evil. (coughs) But what moms give to us is the wisdom to choose the thing that is right and to reject thing that's wrong. And the best moms are not the ones who coddle or smother. We call them helicopter moms today, I think is the term. Who want to ensure that their little prince or princess never gets hurt. In fact, quite the opposite. I think Guy Odom in one of my favorite all-time books, Mothers, Leaders, and Success, when I first got it, I thought that sounds like a wussy title. Excuse me. Turned out to be one of the best reads I've ever read, and I continue to reread it. But he makes this amazing statement. He says, Child rearing practices are the root of adult successes and failures. A successful future role or an unsuccessful one is established during childhood, specifically by mothers. An undisciplined mother exhibits little self control and makes few demands on her child. Her permissively, permissive child-rearing practice produces an undisciplined adult who has no need for self-control. And this is the part I think I emphasize. The child becomes successful to the degree that the mother makes and enforces her demands on the child. On the one hand, she is loving and supportive and praises his success, but she also insists on him doing his best. Achievement is the only way of avoiding failure. Achievement is the only way of avoiding failure. Maybe the reason I resonate with it, because it really parallels my own life story, both negatively and positively, You see, when I was young, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Every mom was a stay-at-home mom when I was a kid. She literally was like that Proverbs 31 woman, very engaged, doing all sorts of things in the market as well as at home. She basically ran the roost. We knew who was in charge. There was no question. And I remember, to my frustration, she made me finish everything I started. She wouldn't let me quit. When I joined the school band and I decided I was tired of doing that, she said, tough, you joined, you stay. And so I had to stay to the chagrin of the band instructor. (laughs) But I realized that she would never let me quit. She made me work for my allowance. I didn't get money for free. I, I had to go work for my allowance. I had to make my bed. I had to clean my room. But at the age of 12, my mom went to work. And for the first time in my life, I was left alone, totally and completely and absolutely alone. And I became a fulfillment of Proverbs 29, 15 that says, the rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. And I did. Now, the rod of correction doesn't mean you're beating your kid with a rod. That's 
it's more of a euphemism that means that basically you're training. You're training your children. You're bringing discipline and structure into their life. And this is a huge problem for us in our culture because more and more we find that moms are required of necessity to work outside of the home and many times leaving the training of their children to others. And it might have been safe at one time to leave the training of your kids to the schools because you recognize that they shared many of the same values that you do. I mean, goodness gracious, many of my teachers were family friends. But today, that's not the case. As we've talked over the last few weeks, there's been a whole indoctrination of generations that do not hold our values and actually view our values very antithetically. But one of the things that Solomon said in Deuteronomy 6, he says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Now, so often passages like that need to be reflected upon and not just simply read. We need to sit back and say, what does that mean to me? How do I implement that? And when he begins by saying, it has to be upon your own heart. Biblical truth doesn't matter if it's not upon your own heart. If it only has made it to your head and hasn't finished that 18-inch journey down to your heart, it's just going to be and remain as something in your head. And there are many who grow up, even within the church, who have their head full of stuff that they don't really believe because it never had its ability to impress itself upon their hearts. When I talk about people not reading their Bibles and urging people to do so, I, I know the ultimate reason why people don't read their Bibles is because they don't believe it's worthwhile. Whatever you think is beneficial to you, you will do it. Anything that you think is profitable to you, you will do it. Nobody will have to tell you to do it. You will do it. If you believe it is profitable to read the Bible and not just read it, but to know what it says, to reflect upon it, to understand its message, if you view it as being the essence of life itself, then nobody will ever have to tell you to read it. It will impress itself upon you and you will find that you will impress it upon your children because it's not something you learned. It's not separate from every moment of your life. It is part and parcel of who you are and everything you do. So that when you are doing just a simple transaction at a restaurant and the waitress somehow makes a mistake and gives you more money than, <coughs> than she should in change. I had that happen to me. I walked in, but paid for my breakfast. I gave her a $10 bill. I walked out and I'm looking at my money and put it in my wallet and I've got two 20s. And I thought, boy, I have just scored. <laughs> and as I had that moment of saying, wow, you came out what ahead, suddenly I realized you know, God, you see this, don't you? I walked back in. I said, ma'am, I think you made a mistake. And she said, all right, what? She got all defensive. And I said, no, no, no. I gave you a $10 bill. You just gave me back two 20s. And she said, oh, thank you. I would have had to pay for that out of my own pocket. And I thought to myself, well, there's love in your neighbor, isn't it? 
But why did I do that? It's because I read his word, I reflected upon his word, and it was impressed upon my heart. And you just start making decisions because it's part of who you are now. You know clearly the distinction between what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is true and false. You're not sanctimonious about it. You're not preachy about it. You're not judgmental about it. You're just simply saying, this is what is true, and I have to be true to what is true. And so you find yourself talking about these things when you're sitting at home. You find that when you're taking that walk, you're, you're talking about it. When, you're, when you lie down at night, it's on your mind. When you get up in the morning, it's what you think about. At least I know that's true in my life. Of course, the big question we face today is what about the single mom? It's, as I said last week, the, the real story of poverty is, is, is single parent homes. That's the real story of poverty in our nation. And what can I say? I mean, I say the obvious things as the pastor would say. Well, the first thing is you just really need to pray. But what do you pray for? You pray for grace, you pray for strength, but maybe most importantly, you pray that somehow God would bring a surrogate father into your child's life. And I don't know how necessarily that might work. I think that grandfathers are great choices. I think grandparents need to step up and begin to realize that if we have a, a, a daughter or a daughter-in-law who's raising kids without a dad, we need to begin to show up very large, especially the dads. Because as somebody once put it to me, that kids just need to get man stink on them once in a while. <laughs> and that's one thing I, I found that I'm pretty good at. I, I can share the stink. But see, Paul Vitz, who, a psychiatrist who wrote a really interesting book called The Faith of the Fatherless, and he did a whole study on, on why some people became atheists, because he himself was an atheist before he got saved. And he said, he made a very interesting, he said, it all comes down to father hunger. He says, the hunger for a father never goes away. A boy without a father will move into gangs or hero worship of some sports star or worse, some charismatic political or cult leader. And badly fathered girls reject God as well and spend their lives seeking relationships to replace him. Fascinating book, Faith of the Fatherless. You might want to read it. But we have to understand that we can't change the social or cultural dynamics that we're placed in. We have to address these things as best we can. But we also have a God who is not insensitive to our needs. When the psalmist said in Psalm 68, sing to God and sing praises to his name and extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. And then he says of him, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonely in families. That as we begin to seek God for certain things, he begins to create structural dynamics in our world that begin to fill in those blanks and oftentimes can speak to the very thing that we lack the most. 
It's that believing that God is my provider, but even more essentially, Jesus said something that confused me when I was first read it as a young Christian. He said, don't call any man on earth your father because you only have one father and he's in heaven. And I thought, well, I mean, so what should I refer to my dad as Mr. Ortiz? Or the way I was raised, hey, you? <laughs> and as I reflected, I suddenly realized that my father in heaven is the perfect role model for me. And so what we need to do, especially if you're a singles moms, is you need to really direct your kids to understanding the role that their heavenly father plays in their life. That they can begin to realize that you want a role model to, to really emulate, to follow after, then understand who the God of the Bible is, what he's like. That he is powerful and he is courageous, but he is also sensitive and sacrificial. And that he loves us so much that he put his life in place of ours so that he might receive the punishment that we deserve. And that becomes essential for us as Christians. Because I go back to Timothy and Paul said, you know, Timothy, I want you to emulate the faith that was in your mom and in your grandmother. We don't know anything about Timothy's dad. He, he was not a Christian. He may have passed away. He doesn't seem to have been on the scene anymore. He may have walked away and left the family for all we know. <clears throat> and believe me, I don't condemn women who are in bad maritalist positions. Having your kids grow up in a dangerous situation, in a harmful and abusive situation, there's no excuse for that. It's never right. You know, women who've come to me and said, well, I, my husband is treating me this way and that way, and my vice is always the same. You need to get safe. God didn't call us to be brutalized and what's going on is a crime. It's a criminal offense. Those kind of things aren't legal. And I think it's been one of the sad tragedies that sometimes in the church we've tried to cover up the bad behavior of guys because we don't want to create a scandal. But the simple fact is that you don't need to subject your children to that kind of bad behavior and you need, don't need to be subject to it either. But what do we do in the aftermath? Well, I think that's where we begin to say to church, how about us stepping up? How about us really recognizing that even in our own congregation, we have scores of single moms. And how are we helping them to address those issues in their life? For some of us, it's not time to retire. It's time to refocus our energies on being there for the most vulnerable in our midst. Let's pray.